Well, good morning, Southwinds. I want to welcome you today. It is so glad, I'm so glad to see you this morning. It's so good to have you here. And it is Palm Sunday, uh, the day that Christ's followers remember uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem to start Holy Week, which is the most important week in all of human history, a week which culminates in the most important day in history, and that is Easter Sunday. And so today we're going to be studying together Luke's account of Palm Sunday. You can find that in Luke 19, verses 28 to 48. You'll want to get your Bibles open to those verses. But while you're doing that, and before we dig in, I need to ask you something for next Easter Sunday, this next Sunday that we're coming on. Since so many people show up as guests on Easter Sunday, we usually welcome between 800 and 1,000 people that aren't here Uh, Normally, uh, I need to ask, as we do each year, as many Southwinders as possible who attend the 9.30 and the 11 o'clock service to consider uh, coming and worshiping with us at the 8 o'clock service. For all of you who love Jesus... um, and are willing to make a sacrifice. I know, I know, greater love hath no man than to come to the 8 o'clock worship service. Um, We're just kind of putting that out here, okay? If you're able, some of you won't be, that's fine, but many of you are. We would love to have you join us. That will clear some seats up at this service, of course, at the 930 service. Uh, If you're not able, and you're going to be here next Sunday at 11 o'clock, let me ask you this. If you're part of our Southwinds family, will you be alert? Will you be looking around? If the room's getting full, uh, will you consider uh, going across the courtyard and uh, taking a seat over in our student center, which is our overflow section? It's going to have video, sound, the whole nine yards is going to be there uh, for you on uh, that uh, time so you can experience Easter worship. Uh, Some of you may just choose to go there ahead of time. Uh, But we'd be very grateful uh, uh, for you if you would do that, uh, that we would just be able to be as welcoming and hospitable uh, to all of our guests who show up uh, this next Sunday. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, uh, you'll get your Bibles open to Luke 19 if you're not already there. And uh, you were probably uh, not uh, in Washington, D.C. back in January 2009 for President Obama's first inauguration. But if you were... Uh, you know that that was a big deal. It was the first African-American president. Uh, A lot of people wanted to celebrate, and so a party was thrown that cost $170 million. Now, in case you're worried about government spending and you're going to get sidetracked by that number, let me just set that aside for you. Most of that was covered by private donations. But why did it cost $170 million? Well, a lot of it was just for mundane stuff, There was a huge crowd, uh, 2 million people gathered on the Washington Mall. Uh, There were 10,000 buses cramming uh, the streets. And so they had to pay for a lot of things like police protection, uh, for medical personnel, and lots and lots and lots of porta-potties. And then with the leftover money, they also paid for things like music, for entertainment. There were Uh, People like Bruce Springsteen and Aretha Franklin and Yo-Yo Ma that were all there. And then uh, after President Obama was sworn in, he led a parade down Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House. And there were 15,000 people, 240 horses, dozens of marching bands from all over the country. 
And after they arrived, then the parties started. There were 10 inaugural balls, one exclusively for children. Because when you celebrate the arrival of a new president, we tend to make it a big deal. Well, today what we are looking at is the arrival, not of a president, but of a new king in ancient Jerusalem, Israel's capital city, and his name is Jesus. Now, before I read Luke 19, verses 28 to 48, I want to put some of this in historical context. If you read the Gospels, you will know that for about three years, Jesus has been engaging in public ministry. And for the last nine months before what we're going to read, he has been working his way, little by little, towards Jerusalem. He started up in the northern part of the country in the area called Galilee, and he has been zigzagging his way south, going through village after village, about 35 villages in all, until he arrives just outside the gates of Jerusalem. And Jesus has timed this very intentionally. He shows up in Jerusalem the exact week of Passover, the Jewish people's greatest celebration. It's the celebration that that commemorates God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt 1,400 years earlier. Jesus arrives just as this celebration begins, and he is about to stage his grand entrance from a place called the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was on a low ridge of hills about two and a half miles long that stands just to the east of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is the middle of three peaks, and they aren't large peaks, especially uh, for those of us who live in California. The Mount of Olives is only about 2,600 feet high, so it's not exactly Mount Shasta. But if you stand on this center peak and you look westward to Jerusalem, right at the eastern gate of the city, you get an incredibly spectacular panoramic view of Jerusalem. This is what it looks like today. And what captures our attention today is the gold-domed mosque, the Dome of the Rock. You probably know this, but this stands where the ancient temple used to stand. And this picture gives us a little bit of an idea of what Jesus would have seen. And that's where we pick up the story. Let's begin reading in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, these are two Uh, little villages on the east side of the Mount of Olives, uh, just less than two miles from Jerusalem. He's at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, so he's going to now go down the western slope of the Mount of Olives, he's going to Across this very narrow valley called the Kidron Valley, and then he's going to ascend back up to the city of Jerusalem. While this is happening, uh, Luke says, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so the King 
shows up in Jerusalem. Uh, what are we going to see today from this text? I want to point out to you three things that his arrival tells us. Here's the first one. You can write this down in your message notes. The king comes to rescue spiritually lost people. Now, when you are reading this passage, you may find yourself thinking, this doesn't sound a lot like the arrival of a king. I mean, here's a a traveling peasant rabbi. He's riding on the back of a donkey. Nothing real regal about that, right? It sounds like Jesus maybe could use some help from a presidential inauguration team, kind of to, to put something together. See, is there any evidence here that this is a royal function taking place? And there actually is. There are several uh, pieces of information that tell us this. And it begins actually with the donkey. This may not seem like a royal mount to us, but 500 years before Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, the prophet Zechariah said that a kingly rescuer would come to Jerusalem. This is Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this donkey Jesus is riding on just has king written all over it. And then in addition, if you look again at verses 33 to 38, what does the crowd do when the donkey is first brought to Jesus? Well, they they strip off their cloaks. This is the second piece of evidence. Some of them use their cloaks as a makeshift saddle for Jesus to sit on. Others throw their cloaks in the middle of the road. This is kind of the first century version of the red carpet. It's just saying a, a VIP, a king, has arrived. Some people think it was a symbolic way of saying, you can ride on our backs if you want, and we will carry you to your throne because you are our king. Look what they shout in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So as Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem, there is no doubt that he is being seen as a, an arriving king. And then there's a third detail that confirms this picture, but Luke actually doesn't record it. Did anyone notice anything missing from Luke's account? I mean, what did Luke choose not to tell us that we would have expected to be there, that the other gospel authors include. I'll give you a hint if you're wondering. Uh, What do we call this Sunday? We call it Palm Sunday. Do you see any palms in Luke 19? No. Matthew and Mark, they tell us that people were stripping branches off trees and waving those branches at Jesus and throwing those branches in the road. And then John's gospel specifically says that those branches came from palm trees, but Luke doesn't. Why did Luke not tell us about palm branches? Well, the answer is probably pretty straightforward. It's probably because Luke was writing for Gentile readers, and he knew that they would not understand the significance of palm branches. So, what do the palm branches mean? See, you are a bunch of Gentiles, and you don't know what they mean, right? Of course, we don't. Well, here's the answer. In ancient Israel, there was another yearly festival. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. This also celebrated the time 1,400 years earlier when God had rescued people from slavery in Egypt. And as they traveled through the Promised Land, they lived in makeshift huts along the way. 
And every year after this, they would celebrate by building little huts out of palm branches. They would live in those for a week to remember their time in the wilderness. And so as these people are waving these palm branches, these palms were being identified with rescue. As they're waving these palm branches and throwing them in the road, they are saying by this, our king, our savior, our rescuer has arrived. He has come. Now, it's also very interesting. Just as all of this is happening, Jesus suddenly puts this kingly rescue thing on hold. And he makes it clear to the people who are paying attention that he's not there to be a kingly rescuer, but a rescuer of another sort. He kind of pushes the pause button on his kingliness, if you would. You say, well, where do, you, where do you get that? Well, go back to the very first verse we read, verse 28. It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So before Jesus rode into the city, he said something. What did he say? Well, it's real easy for us to figure out. We just have to look up the page and read earlier in Luke 19. And we discover there that before he rode into Jerusalem, he told the people one of his famous parables. And it was a story about a king. And this king was leaving town for an extended period of time. And he calls his servants in. He divides his wealth among them. And then later he returns. And he asks the servants to give an account. Now this was intended to be an autobiographical parable. In other words, the parable is about Jesus. Jesus is the king in that story. He's the king who's about to go away for a very long period of time. And we know, of course, that real soon he's going to go to heaven and he's going to be in heaven. And then one day he's going to come back. He's going to return and he's then going to call all people everywhere to account. So just before Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he makes it absolutely clear that there will be some time before he sets up his earthly kingdom. He is saying here, if you will, I am a king, but I'm a king who's going to be gone for a while. Well, question, if Jesus is going away, then why is he riding into Jerusalem? What does he have to do there? And the answer is, for nine months, he's been telling his disciples why he's heading to Jerusalem. This whole trip down from Galilee, slowly heading south, he has been saying to them, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. See, before Jesus could go away and then come back to rescue people as their king, he first had to rescue them as their Savior, as their Savior. What does a Savior rescue people from? Well, the prophet Isaiah describes the coming Savior as one who would rescue people from sin. He would rescue us by taking on himself the punishment that our sins deserve. What is that punishment for sin? The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. And it works like this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but God is the giver of life. And if you push away the giver of life, if you cut yourself off from the giver of life by your sin, the result is always death. Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus came to earth, speaks of a day when a Savior would come and would take the punishment and the death that our sins deserve. Maybe you know these verses, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was entering Jerusalem to be made king, not to be made king, but savior. Jesus was entering Jerusalem not to climb up on a throne, but to climb up on a cross. Jesus was entering Jerusalem not to deliver people from human tyrants, but to deliver people from sin's slavery. This is why Jesus timed his arrival in Jerusalem to coincide with Passover. Again, 1,400 years earlier, God had wanted to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, and Pharaoh didn't want to let them go, and so God sent the 10 plagues. You remember that story? And the 10th plague was the worst of all. God sent the angel of death to kill every firstborn child in Egypt. But God warned his people through Moses that every family, if they sacrificed a lamb and if they put the blood from the lamb sacrifice on the, the doorposts, and when the angel of death saw that blood, he would pass over their house. That, that's where we get Passover. The angel of death passed over. So when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem, he came as the ultimate Passover lamb. In fact, he chose to ride into Jerusalem the very day of the week, that Sunday, when it was customary for families to go and select a lamb that they would sacrifice later in the week. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. This means that if you put your trust in Jesus, if you surrender your life to Jesus, his blood that was shed on the cross will be applied to your life. And the angel of death, that, that death sentence, what our sins deserve, that will pass over you as well. I have to pause here and ask a very important question. Have you ever received Jesus as your Passover lamb? Have you surrendered your life to him as Savior? You see, the king shows up. And when he shows up, he comes to rescue spiritually lost people. Here's the second thing we see in this text. The king weeps over spiritually lost people. Uh, we'll pick the story up in verse 39. Uh, Luke writes again, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now remember, uh, the people have been calling out praise to Jesus. The Pharisees are insulted. They're thinking, who does Jesus think he is? God? Of course, the answer we know is yes, because he was. Verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, some people, maybe some of us, think of crying as a sign of weakness. But we see here, as we see in other places, Jesus, the most perfect human being who ever lived, was not afraid to cry. And he gets to the edge of Jerusalem and he sees the city and he breaks down in tears. In fact, if you go to the Mount of Olives today, you're going to see this little church uh, that's constructed in the shape of a human teardrop. It's supposedly at the place where 
Jesus actually broke down and wept over the city of Jerusalem. That verb that uh, Luke uses in verse 41 for wept is a very strong word in Greek. It can be translated to sob loudly. It can be translated to wail. Just think about what is happening here. Consider this in the flow of this story. Here is Jesus riding into town, surrounded by a bunch of people who are singing and praising God loudly. Maybe their fists are punching the air in celebration. Maybe they're jumping up and down. It's this raucous, joyful mood, and Jesus suddenly stops in his tracks, and he begins to weep. This is why some Bible scholars say that we've misnamed this story. If you look at your Bible, the heading above this probably says the triumphal entry. And from the perspective of the crowd, it certainly was triumphal. But from Jesus' point of view, it was tragic. Why was it tragic? Why did Jesus weep over Jerusalem? Well, Jesus tells us why in verse 42. It's because these people were about to miss their only hope for true peace. You see that word peace in the middle of verse 42? You might underline or circle that. And Jesus, when he talks about peace, is not talking about this you know, warm, nice feeling that we might get in our, our lives when everything is going well for us. He is talking specifically about peace with God. Jesus came to earth to bring peace with God. Maybe you're thinking right now, well, why do I need peace with God? I mean, I'm not at war with God. But if you are not one of his followers, that is exactly what the Bible does not say. The Bible makes it very clear that our sins, the things we do, the things we say, the things we we think, those things that are an offense to God, those things push God away. And in fact, it's not just the sins themselves. It's also the attitude behind those sins, the rebellion that is there. Every time we sin, every time we do our own thing, I mean, can I say it this way? It's kind of like we're flipping God off. We're saying, I know what you say, God, but I do what I want. We set ourselves in opposition and hostility to God, and consequently, there is no peace between God and us, even when we think there is. There is no peace until something can be done about our sin, and that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to take the punishment our sins deserve so he could offer us the gift of forgiveness. But then he also came, we know as his followers, to offer us the power to conquer sin in our lives on a daily basis. Jesus came to bring peace with God. Jesus came to bring you peace with God. And Jesus weeps over those who refuse his offer, over everyone who refused his offer. He weeps over those who turn their backs on him in rebellion. He weeps over those who ignore his offer, who, who refuse to acknowledge their sin and put their trust and their hope in him. He weeps. The second reason Jesus wept as he approached Jerusalem, we see in verses 43 and 44, they were about to face devastating judgment. In these verses, Jesus warns of God's coming judgment against Jerusalem. He he weeps because he knows what's coming. We have the benefit of looking back on history and knowing what happened. And we know today that Jesus describes exactly what was going to take place about 35 years in the future uh, in 70 AD. And by this time, Caesar had finally gotten tired and had enough of the troubles that Judea was causing the Roman 
empire. And so he sent the emperor Titus with his army. And they surrounded the city, built embankments around it, just like Jesus says here. They systematically starved the people. And when the people were too weak to defend themselves, they broke through the gates and began killing people right and left. And then they demolished the city walls. They demolished the temple. They demolished every house in the city. Not one stone was left on top of another, just like Jesus predicted. And so Jesus wept because these people were facing imminent judgment. And Jesus still weeps today for people who, by turning down his offer of peace with God, are destined to face eternal judgment. You see, if you refuse to surrender your life to Christ, which would result in forgiveness for your sins, which would result in power for you to conquer sin on a daily basis in in your life, if you refuse that offer, then one day you will face God's judgment for your sins. The Bible has a lot to say about that, and we don't like that today. We We don't like anything in our context today that talks about something like judgment. In fact, a lot of people reject passages like this and say, you know what, the Jesus I believe in, uh, he, he was about love. He talked about love. That's who Jesus is. And the truth of the matter is, Jesus talked a lot about love. But the truth of the matter also is, and you cannot escape it except by denying what is in the Bible, the truth of the matter also is that Jesus talked a lot about judgment. And he told anyone who would listen, avoid judgment at all costs. I want you to allow me, if you would, to address two groups of people before we move on. And the first group is those of you who are in this room right now, who who Jesus is weeping over because you've refused this offer of peace. He's weeping over you right now. For whatever reason, maybe right now, you're you're holding him at arm's length. He has offered you peace with God, and you know it, but you have refused to this point. He has offered you escape from eternal punishment, but you said, no, thank you. Today, please, in this moment, I, I plead with you for the sake of your life, for the sake of your eternity, humble yourself before God. Confess your sins to Jesus Thank God that he would love you enough that he would give Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, though you don't deserve it. And then invite Jesus into your life to be your Lord, to be your Savior. The Bible says you need to repent and you need to believe and you need to begin following Jesus with all of your life. And the first step for you, if you would do that, is to get baptized. We're going to have a baptism service in just a few weeks. I plead with you to get right with God, Jesus weeps over you today. The other group that I want to address would be more of the majority of us in this room right now, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus. But here's the truth. It's a long, been a long time, if ever, that we have shed a tear for friends or neighbors or family members who are far from God. Jesus weeps over such people, and yet we're not moved Jesus also weeps over those who won't weep for lost people. When was the last time as a Christ follower that you wept over someone who who doesn't know your Savior? When was the last time you, you wept because they are lost and they are headed for eternal judgment? You say, well, I'm not a crier. All right, well, Jesus, your Lord, 
was. So there. And even if you don't cry, and I'm not going to argue with you about emotions. We're all different. People express emotions in different ways. Here's the thing. Do you ever long and yearn and desire passionately to see people surrender to Christ? To see people discover peace with God. To see people escape eternal punishment and receive the gift of eternal life. Do you long for that? Is that that a pressing concern in your life? Do you think about that regularly or is that a thought that kind of enters your mind just here and just there? I mean, what about your neighbors? What about the people that you've lived near for years? Everybody's got neighbors. Do you ever long for them to come to Christ? Are you praying for them? Are you seeking opportunities to reach them? Now, we all work. We all have jobs. What about the people you spend the bulk of your your daily life with during the week? Do you long for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ? And what about your family? Is there someone in your family who doesn't know Jesus Christ? Are you longing for them to know and have what you know and what you have? And let's just extend it to the whole world because the Bible tells us who follow Christ, we're responsible to take the gospel to the whole world. What about all the people all around our country? What about all the people living in other continents, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, in South America? Are we longing for people to come to Jesus Christ? See, the king shows up, and he comes to rescue spiritually lost people. And when the king shows up, he weeps over spiritually lost people. Do we? Here's the third thing we want to see. The king prioritizes ministry to spiritually lost people. Now, this last section of our text today is actually something that happens the next day. Jesus shows up on Sunday But then he goes back to the temple on Monday. This is still very much a part of his arrival in the city. Look at verses 45 to 48. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So Luke tells us that Jesus shows up at the temple and he began to drive out the people who were selling. Question, what were they selling and why were they selling it in the temple grounds? And the answer is this. People went to worship at the temple and part of their worship was to bring an animal uh, to sacrifice to pay for their sins because, as we've said, sins deserve death. And so God allowed for an animal substitute, a sacrifice. This is the Old Testament sacrificial system. But many people, when they went to the temple, had to travel long distances to get there. And it was extremely hard to have to bring an animal all that way. And so at some point, the religious leaders said, hey, we can help with that. We will provide animals right here by the temple. What's wrong with that? Well, before I answer this question, Let me give you another detail that Luke leaves out, other gospel writers included. Not only did Jesus drive out the sellers of sacrificial animals, he also drove out the money changers. You remember that? So you say, okay, well, what were the currency exchange guys doing at the temple? Again, some background. Every year, a Jewish male 
when he appeared at the temple, was supposed to pay a temple tax. And so you would come to the temple, you would pay the tax. But again, if you live far away, you might have a different kind of currency that wasn't the right kind. And so again, the religious leader stepped in and said, we can help. We can exchange your money. What's wrong with that, you ask? Well, a couple problems with this whole system of selling animals and exchanging money. I I, I bet you could guess the first. What originally was started to help people became a business. And they were selling to make a profit. And that evolved into them gouging people, charging exorbitant rates. And this made Jesus mad. But then there was a bigger problem. This is the second reason that Jesus' blood boiled. That he turned over these huge tables loaded with coins, that he drove everyone to the exits. It is this. It is because this was all happening in the court of the Gentiles, the the part of the temple where this was going on. This part was being misused. Again, some historical background. 900 years earlier, when Solomon built the temple, he anticipated that not only would Jewish worshipers come to worship the one true living God, but he also foresaw a day when Gentiles, when spiritually lost people far and wide, when the nations would hear about the temple and would come to Jerusalem to find out about this God named Yahweh. And so they added this court of the Gentiles to the temple proper, and it was intended for people who weren't part of the Jewish faith to be able to gather and be close to the worship of God. So even when Solomon cut the ribbon, so to speak, on the dedication ceremony of the temple, the original temple, and you can read about this in 1 Kings 8, he he prayed, oh God, may this be a place where the nations, where the Gentiles, where spiritually lost people can find you. That was in its purpose all along. And now we fast forward to the days of Jesus. And I'm going to show you a picture of the temple courts. Jesus comes, and this is what he experienced, something like this. And you can see highlighted the court of the Gentiles all around the main temple. It was this place for people who were seeking God, a place where they could feel welcome, a place where they could pray. It was a place for spiritually lost people. And Jesus comes to that, and what does he find? Well, he finds a three-ring circus. He finds so much noise and chaos that you, you could hardly think. How could anyone seek a relationship with God in the midst of that? And so Jesus drives them out because his goal was to restore this temple, this place, to its original purpose, to be a place where spiritually lost people could connect with God. And it actually worked, what he did. Now, I say that because if you look at verse 47, it tells us for the rest of the week, Jesus was able to show up every day and teach in this court of the Gentiles about God. And the end of verse 48 says, all the people hung on his words. Now, I'll tell you I, what I find kind of amusing by this, about this. It, it kind of helps to have a weird imagination like I do, but I'm kind of thinking, why did they let him in the next day after Monday? I mean, he really messed the place over. I'm thinking, wasn't someone looking at the security camera video <laughs> and saying, that's the guy. Don't let him in. Get the guards. Get him out of here. Now, even if they'd had security camera video, They couldn't have done that. They didn't do that. Why? 
Well, Luke tells us because the people were hanging on his words. Because the people were so desperately, spiritually hungry, the religious leaders had no choice but to let Jesus stay and teach. Now, what do we take from this? What lessons do we learn? I'm going to close with with two lessons. The first is a corporate lesson. That means like for all of us together. The second is personal. Here's the corporate lesson. It has to do with our mission, our vision as a church. We must always keep our focus on making this a place where spiritually lost people can find God. And what this means, if you're here today and you don't know God, but you're seeking God, you're wanting to know more about him, you you want a deeper relationship with him and you're not sure what to do, what this means is we want this to be a place where you feel welcome, where you can come and you can explore and you can ask questions and we will receive you and try to help you in any way we can. We want this to be a place where you can look around and you can see other people who have met Jesus and their lives are being changed, their lives are being redeemed redeemed and transformed. We want you to know that we are here for you. And then to those of you who are already Christ followers, what this means is this. I hope that we will be able to avoid the common temptation that Christ followers face when we come to gather in a place with our Christian friends, and that is to begin to somehow think of this as some sort of a Christian club that is designed and aimed at us, where we come to church, and what we're really thinking about fundamentally is, are the messages good for me? Is the music good for me? Are the children's programs good for my kids? We're asking those kinds of questions. That's all we're thinking about. We need to be thinking about what we do here, not just for us, but for other people who don't know God yet. We need to be building friendships with people far from God, people who need Jesus Christ. We want to be a place where those people can be brought and they can connect with God, where they hear a message maybe that that speaks to their lives, or or maybe we bring them to a small group. You ever tell anybody, you know, hey, I've got a great group of people that I meet with, and we just study the Bible, and it's really, really good. You ought to come. You ever ask anybody to do that? Or maybe you've got some friends, and they have kids like you have kids. You ever tell them, Our kids love it at Southwinds on Sundays and during the week when we have activities. Your kids would love it too. Why don't you let me bring them someday? See, are we thinking about people who Jesus died for, people that don't know him yet? See, this is our our corporate goal to make this a place where spiritually lost people can connect with God. Are you with me? And then on a personal basis, Those of us who claim to be Christ followers, we should be constantly asking ourselves the question, is my life drawing spiritually lost people to Jesus? My life. Are spiritually lost people able to connect with God through me? You see, just like they were able to connect with God in the court of the Gentiles, think of it this way. We should strive in our lives to personify the court of the Gentiles. How would you answer this question for yourself? Um, Is your life currently a point of connection to God for other people? 
who are spiritually lost? If you're honest about that and the answer is no, or maybe the answer is I don't think so, then the the question becomes why not? Is it because you're currently entangled in some spiritual or sinful behavior and you know you're not exactly a walking advertisement, a good advertisement for Jesus? If that's true, and I suspect it is for some of you, I have a word for you. It's from the Bible. It's actually from Jesus. It's repent. Turn from your sin. Ask Jesus to forgive you and get back in the game of doing what he's called you to do. You know, for a lot of us, it may not be that, but you know what it is? Our lives are just too busy. We have crammed our schedules full of so many things that in and of themselves may be fine, but we filled our lives up with so much stuff. We don't have time for Jesus. Anybody see a problem with that? You know, around here from time to time, you will hear me say, there is a God and he is not you. And can I put it this way today? There is a creator and you're a creature. And therefore, that means his agenda is first. His agenda is above my agenda. And some of us have decided by the way we've chosen to live our lives to reverse that thing. And we are doing our agenda. We are spending all of our time on what we want to do. And we kind of fit God in where it's convenient for us. Am I, is it getting a little warm in here for anybody? Maybe we're not on mission for God because we've made our life about our mission, not about, about God's mission. I think this story is a reminder to us to come back to the place where we realize that God has called each of us to serve him and follow him in a very special way. And that way prioritizes spiritually lost people. You know, somebody said one time that the church is the only organization on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members. Do you see what we do here in that light? You say, well, how can I... How can I apply what we've been talking about in my life? Let me, let me focus this real, uh, you know, real quickly on what's coming up in our lives in just the next week. Because Easter Sunday is coming, right? One week away. Let me tell you a couple of things you can do to apply this in your life. Number one, you can pray every day, right? Every day. Can you say every day? Every day. Between now and Easter Sunday for what God is going to do here at Southwinds. We're going to celebrate the risen Jesus. Amen? Amen? And you can pray that God makes that come together in such a way and God brings the people he wants to be here in such a way that lives get transformed, that people get saved, that, that Christians get encouraged, that all those things happen. You can pray about that. And as you're praying about that, you should join in that by inviting people that you know to come and be part of what God's going to do here. Not as many amens on that one. <laughs> I know, I hear that. And, and then you can even think about, I was thinking about this last service, you know, some of you are, are gonna celebrate Easter Sunday uh, with some people that you really don't like that much. They're in your family. And, uh, <laughs> amen? amen? They're not here, they don't know. <laughs> but you can start praying about that because your attitude is a bad attitude. And you can just ask God to soften your heart and make you ready to, to, to spend some time with those people that you don't like that much sometimes that are your family. 
and that you can be a witness to Christ for them. I mean, we could just kind of keep going with this because it doesn't end at Easter. I'm just talking about the next week to keep it focused in front of us. But here's the thing. Jesus, the king, arrived on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, and he came because he loves lost people. He came because he loved you. You once were lost, but now you're found. And there's some other people that are lost, and Jesus wants to find them. And you know what's really cool? He wants you to be part of that. You can be part of his rescue mission. See, Southwinds, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Are we going to hear it? Are we going to follow it? Are we going to do what Jesus says? That's what I want to leave you with. Would you bow your heads and we pray together?